Hello and welcome to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award Shortlist Podcast, part of the International Literature Festival Dublin. My name is Jessica Trainer, And I'm Caelan Hogan. In this special podcast series, we will explore each novel in detail as we chat exclusively to the authors shortlisted for the award, the winner of which will be announced on the 22nd of October. For the first time, the winner announcement will take place as part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which, like the award, is sponsored by Dublin City Council. Celebrating 25 years this year, the award is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English or translated into English, worth €100,000 to the winner or winners. On today's episode, we'll be discussing The Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker, published by Hamish Hamilton. Tell me about this uh, book, Jessica. This was just a fascinating book to read in the current moment, especially. Um, It's a book by Pat Barker, who we are all aware of from things like the Regeneration Trilogy. She's an author who's had a fascinating journey from kind of publishing early work with Virago Press, which dealt with kind of working class lives in Northern England through to writing about men and war. Um, And this book kind of synthesizes those two aspects of her career because it reimagines the Iliad from the point of view of Briseis, who's a Trojan queen who is captured um, and is made Achilles' slave. And most of the kind of classical depictions of their relationship focus on a romance. But Pat Barker is writing about war from the point of view of women. Um, and the things that happen to women in war and the realities of war. And she does something really intriguing with the book whereby she gives us this incredible kind of brutal realism. You know, she doesn't shy away from the violence or the rape um, or the lives of these slaves and how precarious they are. And yet we also have the kind of the magical, uh, mythical elements of the Iliad, you know, um, Achilles is a demigod and there are there are curses being called down by priests that result in plagues and she does this this wonderful tension between the notion of yes this could be intervention from the gods but also there's a plague in an army camp which is infested with rats Um, so it's just a, a really interesting book I think in the present moment because again it gives voice to this female character but it also reminds us not to romanticise war or of the dangers of romanticising war um, and also of the kind of timeless nature of this negative experience of women in areas of war and how lasting the legacy of that can be. Right, I'm going to read an extract now. The slave women in the basement were dragged out first. Still watching from the roof, I saw a woman raped repeatedly by a gang of men who were sharing a wine jug passing it good-naturedly from hand to hand while waiting their turn. Her two sons, twelve, thirteen years old perhaps, lay wounded and dying a few yards away from her, though those few yards might as well have been a mile. She had no hope of reaching them. She kept stretching out her hands and calling their names as first one and then the other died. I turned away. I couldn't bear to go on watching. By now, all the women had come up to the roof and were huddled together, young girls in particular clinging to their mothers. We could hear laughter as the Greeks crowded up the stairs. Ariana, my cousin on my mother's side, grasped my arm, saying without words, come. 
and then she climbed onto the parapet and, at the exact moment they burst onto the roof, threw herself down, her white robe fluttering round her as she fell, like a singed moth. It seemed to be a long time before she hit the ground, though it could only have been seconds. Her cry faded to a stricken silence in which slowly, stepping out in front of the other women, I turned to face the men. They stared at me, awkward now, uneasy, like puppies who aren't sure what to do with the rabbit they've caught in their jaws. It's interesting reading that because one of the other books uh, that we talk about is is Washington Black and it discusses this idea of escape or, or freedom through death as sometimes being the only way that women have, particularly women, mm. of sort of asserting their agency in a moment of violence. Uh, and I think one of the things that Pat Barker does so interestingly in this book is that, you know, she foregrounds it with the woman's experience. But as the book progresses, we also get the sense of how the men are trapped within this warfare, too. And their agency is exercised in a different way. They can go out and die on the battlefield and the women can die by suicide. But death is actually the only outcome in most cases. And I think it's a tremendously sensitive book in that sense in that it it looks at the picture as a whole, you know, the destructiveness of warfare and how it affects both men and women. So there's a surprising element to that that creeps in as the book continues and as we get to know some of the male characters like Achilles and Patroclus a little bit better. Jessica, you talked to Pat, so let's have a listen to that now. Thank you so much for being here, Pat. It's such a pleasure to speak to you. And this book in particular has just stayed with me so much since I read it. Um, uh, and it just, you know, so many images of it are, are still haunting me. So I'm really, really excited to chat a little bit more about it. Um, but I suppose I'd love to start off by saying this uh, This is part of the shortlist for the International Dublin Literary Award. Um, and, you know, it's it's a wonderful pleasure each year. It's an award I look out for each year because I love the eclecticism of the choices. You know, there's always a wonderful range of different voices. And the fact that these Books are chosen through the public library system around Europe. I just think is a lovely thing because, um, you know, it's not a panel of judges working away completely divorced from the reality of readerships. It is a reflection of the of the love of the readers. Um, and I've had the pleasure now of reading uh, the, the 10 books over the past couple of weeks, some of which I'd read before, but I'm refreshing myself with them. Um, and it's been really interesting to think about some of the themes that run through them. I mean, obviously, the books are not all published in the past year. Year, but I think they do give a very interesting representation of the kind of the zeitgeist and what readers are connecting with at the moment. And one of the things I found particularly fascinating in, in this book, and it runs through your work in, in general, I think, but the exploration of the psychology of violence, you know, about how humankind deals uh, with violence and war. Um, and can you talk a little bit about how you approach this theme in this particular book? Because I know it's something that's run through through a lot of your work. Well, I came to the Iliad very late because I've, I've, um, I've no background in classics. Well, my background in classics is that I managed to fail O-level Latin seven times, which was a, a bit of a record in my school. So I'm um, not a natural classicist. But when I did it, I can't remember exactly how I got to the Iliad. I think it was the Philip Roth book, him saying that the whole of European literature begins with a quarrel between two men over a girl. 
And that, that idea fascinated me. So I, I went and read the opening chapters of the Iliad. And it's true, of course, you have these two very powerful men uh, making these amazing speeches and the girls they're quarreling over say nothing at all, not one word. And as a woman, uh, you hear that silence. Whereas I think a man, however liberal-minded and well-intentioned might read the same passage and not hear the silence in the same way. So it grew out of the silence of the girls. Yes, yeah, which is such a wonderful, striking title. Um, but it is so interesting, you know, again, to go back to that notion of, of the quarrel between two men. I think one of the things that you you really explore um, in such a fascinating way in The Silence of the Girls is how it's not really about the women at all, that the women are a commodity that's traded between these men. And often the fallings out between them are not about romance or love or even a deep connection but about one person taking another person's possession yes 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 it's uh, <clears throat> i think when uh in the course of the book uh Briseis, who starts as achilles slave girl is transferred to be the slave girl of agamemnon and she has a terrible experience with him because he doesn't see her he sees her as a possession he's managed to get from this dreadful man. So if he humiliates her, he's humiliating Achilles. And the woman's body is actually a battleground over which the men are fighting. Mm, and I think one of the, the the amazing tensions in the book and a tension that I felt, you know, I, I, I took on the more and more I read is this anxiety on the part of the women, this knowledge that... Uh, you know, their value is finite and their status within this kind of terrible system, this trade system, this system of slavery um, runs out, you know. Um, and uh, I just think that's a very, very important viewpoint to represent. And uh, why did you feel you wanted to represent that viewpoint, I suppose, at this particular time in history? Oh, I'd have liked to represent it at any time in yes, history of course, if I'd been taught to read and write and had the capacity to be a writer. Um, I think it is very much a missing viewpoint. And re recently in the COVID-19 crisis in England, uh, you, you become increasingly aware that women's voices are absent and part of the reason for that is that the fight against COVID-19 is being represented as the war of their generation. Uh, Boris Johnson said quite recently, this is the worst crisis we faced in my lifetime. But he's all the time recalling the Churchillian speeches that were made during the Second World War. And I think as soon as you see the battle as being a war, you exclude women, because war has always been men's business, even though it's women who have borne the brunt of it in so many ways. They might not be killed in the same numbers, though in some wars they are, or even greater numbers, uh, but they are the ones who pick up the pieces afterwards, who nurse the people who are terribly injured. So I, I do think the that perspective, uh, which is the perspective of people who 
bear the long-term trauma of war is a very valuable one. Mm, absolutely. And I think it's so interesting to think, you know, just coming coming up and coming past the, the, the various centenaries of the First World War and re-examining, of course, the attitude um, at the time and the contemporary attitude. Do, do you think we're still caught up in the West in a glorification of war? Do you think that's a mode that we slip back into quite easily? I think it's a very easy... Um reference point to go to, perhaps particularly in Britain. Uh, I do feel that sometimes it's the memorials are misunderstood um, on the continent, perhaps particularly in Germany, that, you know, Poppy Day and Armistice Day it's not about, for most people, it's not about jumping up and down saying, we won, aren't we great? It is about commemorating the dreadful losses uh, which you know, all the, the combatants went through. I mean, uh, when I was writing the Regeneration Trilogy about the First World War, I went to the battlefields in France, uh, to the graveyards in France, and I can honestly say, you no, know, no, people were not buried neatly. There are the British, there are the Germans, there are the French. People tend, in the worst times, people were just buried where they died. There was no time to do anything else. And so you do get German graves in British cemeteries quite frequently. And I've never seen a German grave that was not covered with poppies. It's, it's, uh, it's less confrontational less dinosaur-like than it's sometimes represented. It is a, it is a, a commitment to peace. Yes, absolutely. And I suppose the problem comes when these kind of the kind of rhetoric is is resurrected to talk about wars against things that are abstract, like COVID, you know, which yes. we would love to be able to personify as a human enemy or even in the case of America and things like the war on terror. Um, you know, it's it's very easy to get lost in, in rhetoric. And I think that that's something I want to come to the male characters in the book as well, because they're so compelling. But it's something that um, Briseis is constantly aware of is the rhetoric um, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the beautifully uh, spoken and delivered exchanges between these men, which are on the level of abstraction, while the women wait in the background to discover if they are going to be handed over to a, a horrific new male owner or if they're going to end up sleeping under a under a building like some of the camp followers. Um, but what I really enjoyed about this book uh, is that I think you you manage a wonderful feminist perspective in that you're not just looking at the women, but you're also looking at the effects on the psyches of the male characters in great detail. And Achilles in particular, uh, we come to know him over the course of the book and he becomes a really compelling character. Um, how did it feel to, to find your way into the psyche of, of somebody like Achilles, who is intensely sensitive in some ways, but also godlike in others in terms of his demigod status? <laughs> Yes, his, uh, I think his relationship with his mother is the key to Achilles because Achilles is half divine. So, you know, he was so nearly a god. Uh, and, uh, uh, I th you know, I thought a lot about the relationship with the goddess mother. 
and you know, in a way, you're 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 moving out of the realms of realism. But in another way, of course, all the really difficult men you've ever known in your life had a goddess for a mother. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a very well-known fact, among, um, at least among women, and I think possibly men do notice that too. Uh, actually, uh, when I tried to tackle Achilles, I felt I was coming home. Not, not you know, not in every respect, but. In lots of ways, it is post-traumatic stress disorder, which, you know, in the Regeneration Trilogy, I explored over three books. And uh, I looked at the story of Achilles and I thought, yes, I can do this. Mm, absolutely. This is mine. Yes. <laughs> I thought, yes, I know it's a terrible thing to say about the Iliad, but I did think, yes, this is mine. It yeah. didn't feel foreign to me at all. Absolutely. Um, and I think that so much of this book is is very much yours, Pat. I love that it's it's earthy, it's lyrical. Um, you know, that and 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 what I really admire about it is something you just touched upon there, which is the notion that um everything about it feels intensely naturalistic and yet we still have the the mythic aspects, the gods, the curses, the hexes. Um, and and how did you approach kind of weaving those together? I think you've done a wonderful job. But I think the temptation might have been, and it sometimes is in other retellings of of Greek myth, to try and explain away the 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 kind of the surreal or the mystical aspects. Did that yes. ever cross your mind? Uh, I I did explain away an awful lot of it. There is uh, there's always an alternative explanation there. Uh, you know, there's a, the terrible plague at the beginning, which is mentioned in the Iliad, but I, I make a lot more of it than the Iliad does. And uh, it's, it's, it's the explanation in the Iliad is that Apollo is enraged because his priest has been insulted and therefore he fires his arrows into the camp and, you know, first, first the animals and then the men start to die in great numbers. And that is why, when Achilles calls the assembly and has his row with Agamemnon. Uh, and I, I never, I, I don't argue with that. But at the same time, I emphasize that this place is infested with rats. It's absolutely filthy. They've all got fleas. And these are the breeding ground, perfectly naturalistic breeding grounds of a plague. The, the exception, as I've just said, is. Um, Achilles' mother, who is unequivocally a goddess, yes, and has to be, yes, yeah. And I suppose but there's no say, Achilles without that mother. But as you say yourself, it does work on on a literal level as well as you know there are literal interpretations of that. And I'm when you were talking about every man's mother being a goddess, I was thinking about the wonderful trope of the Irish mammy, <laughs> which <laughs> I, as a woman, have been aware of. In uh, or the Jewish mother, or the Jewish there, mother, or there are the lots of them all over the world. Exactly, exactly. Um, but it's, it's, yeah. this is the paradox of women. You see that all over the world, women are comparatively powerless still and were much less powerful in the past than they are now. And yet there was always this figure of absolutely gigantic, unquestionable power in everybody's life. And so I do think a large part of the psychology of both women and men is just getting out of the tyranny of the nursery yes. and being absolutely determined never to go back to it. Yes. So the yes. slightest trace of nannyishness in a female politician 
and she is finished. It's... Nobody wants it. We, men don't want it, but actually women don't want it either. No. It's a great problem of self-presentation. Absolutely. Women politicians. I mean, it's so interesting, and it's even when I think about things like like the, the 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 hex in the book and the notions of witchcraft. I often think, what are these things except for expressions of female power within the terrible confines of these yes. structures yes. that they find themselves in? Whether they're in war, you know, what kind of a violence can you commit? What kind of a statement can you make when you're essentially a slave? Um, yes. And and yes. I think those attitudes are felt by the people who are doing the oppressing um, and can then be seen to be this kind of dark power. Um, but I'd love to talk a little bit about Briseis herself because she's just a fascinating, uh, she's a fascinating protagonist and a wonderful, a wonderful character to spend time with and a wonderful avatar for us within the book um, to recount what is happening. It's a wonderful um it's a wonderful point of view to have. Um, and I think her form of heroism is incredibly interesting because we we see her make a number of agonised and agonising decisions over the course of the book and how she is going to preserve herself within this impossible situation. Uh, you know, she has a chance of escape at one point. I don't want to give too much away for people who haven't read it, but her decision at that point is really fascinating. Um, and, and to me, it speaks of a kind of a very quiet heroism which I think, as the book points out, is very diff- is very easy to erase in terms of histories where, you know, what's recorded is defined by these grand actions. Um, but can you talk to me a little bit about how you found your way into her perspective? I think I, I think the voice came very early. And uh, as always, of course, in writing a book, you're constantly being pulled away to do other things. But she was always waiting for me when I got back and she started talking again straight away. So in that sense, she was, uh, I'm very grateful for her to for always being there and not losing her voice halfway through the book. It was a problem um, to give her enough of a sense of agency because you know she's a, she's a woman in a world of men, but she's also a slave who is owned by some of the men. And by definition, of course, slaves do not have agency. Um, and yet, you don't want to present her as completely passive, because if you present a character as completely passive, the reader stops identifying with them. We identify with people who are struggling to make their lives better. We're trying to shape their world. And uh, it was quite a challenge to do that with her. And uh, I hope I managed it because inevitably her room for maneuver is very, very limited. She's constantly, she's constantly smiling, uh, constantly looking extremely beautiful because that is the way she's staying alive, essentially. Uh, but being able to take action, her opportunities for doing that are very limited. But she does forge friendships with the other women, which is a source of strength to her and to them. And she preserves her own internal sense of her identity. It does help that in her previous, although she's still very young, she's 19, 
In her previous life, she was a queen. She had a public role to some extent. And I think that gives her uh, a confidence that some of the very young girls, the ones who were only 14 or 15 and were living at home with their families who have been killed, uh, those girls sometimes cling on to their captors because their captors are actually the only <coughs> solid reference point in a terrifying world. It's almost a version with some of the girls of the Stockholm Syndrome that you identify with the captor. Yes. Better than being completely at sea and terrified. Absolutely. But she doesn't do that. She doesn't identify with Achilles. And uh, it's so often said that she was in love with Achilles, you know, and, you know, he killed her husband. He killed all four of her brothers. He burnt her house to the ground. You know, women are really peculiar. They do tend not to fall in love with men who do that. <laughs> But men do like to believe that they do, that she was in love with Achilles. I said to one man who'd read the book, uh, no, I don't think she was in love with Achilles. And he said, oh, she was in love with Patroclus. And, you know, <laughs> no, she wasn't in love with any of them. Why would she be? Oh, I think that's fantastic. And I really do feel that was one of the things I got strongly from the book is is, is Briseis saying, you know, whatever, whatever love or warmth is found here, I hope they ascribe it to the correct people. And, yes, you that's know, right. And I think and the great... The, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus is a, a, you know, a very civilised relationship. Uh, it's not overtly sexual in the book, but I think it is nevertheless clear. The way Achilles mourns Patroclus is so physical. He misses his physical presence. Uh, you don't tend to do that unless there's been either a parent-child relationship or a sexual relationship. It's uh, That's that physicality of the love which explains what the relationship has been. Yes, and I think you explore the complexity of that so well. And, and it, you know, the, the, the process of Achilles grieving Patroclus, I suppose, in a sense, gives him his redemption. I feel in my eyes as a reader, I felt that there was something absolutely monstrous that was unleashed by in his grief over Patroclus's death. But then we have the scenes with Priam, which, again, I don't want to give too much away um, and all wonderfully recounted through Briseis's fantastically kind of dispassionate eye. Um, but there is something that humanises Achilles at that point, I think. Uh, and again, it seems to be He around. becomes a human being. Yes. And, and he does it through grief and, as you say, through a particular meeting at yes. the end of the book. Yeah. But the, his tragedy, really, is that he becomes a proper feeling, compassionate human being on the verge of his own death. Yes. Because Achilles was famously uh, condemned to die young. Mm -hmm. And again, it comes back to what we've talked about, about how war destroys those family structures, both for uh, the slave girls that we talked about, especially the younger ones who are who are transplanted from one family setting into this other Stockholm syndrome type setting, but also for the men, you know, and Patroclus was was Achilles' family, really, in the way that it mattered. Um, and the loss of that is devastating for him. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating cycle, I think, 
uh, that I think we see. I, I, can I just say that, you know, so, so I have read by a, a classicist writing about the Iliad that Patroclus is a plot device, uh, that the, the only reason Patroclus is there is so that Achilles, you know, uh, goes back to the war. Uh, and I think it's completely wrong. I think Patroclus is much, much more than a plot device. I think Patroclus is actually the moral centre uh, mm-hmm. of the Iliad. He's, he's the only man, uh, for most the bulk of the book, he's the only man of compassion, loyalty, uh, kindness, whom you meet. Mm-hmm. The others are predatory animals, frankly, Absolutely. a lot of the time. Yeah. So Patroclus, for me, is the centre. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I think for for Briseis as well, um, you know, he is he is the one person who offers some kind of I don't want to say stability, but perhaps consistency in a world where people's actions are so much dictated by this heroic framework in which all of these men are forced to exist. And I think that's a big statement about the nature of warfare, both ancient and modern. Um. But I'd love just to talk a little bit about um, there's one image that stuck with me throughout the book um, and haunted me, I think, throughout the book. And that is uh, early in the narrative of Ariana uh, falling from the tower, this beautiful image of of the woman falling like a singed moth. Um, And it really is. It's an it's an image, I think, that haunts. Uh, both Briseis and haunts the book in general. Um, but for me, in that early, those early moments of the book, the experiences of women in war are, are told with such directness. Um, and it really struck me that we don't, we still don't see a lot of that kind of representation. Um, do, do you feel that yourself, that, that it's still a subject that's shied away from in literature to some extent? Yes, I do think so, but I think it's part of a larger shying away. Because um, I, I think an awful lot of the experience of men is not represented either. Um, if you look at the images of any war, really, uh, you know, you, you have the glorious dead, uh, and you have uh, slightly wounded men who are waving at the cameras and uh, saying tremendously cheerful things, you don't see the man who is left with no arms and no legs. He is totally invisible. And uh, after the Falklands War, there was a a service of thanksgiving in Westminster Abbey at which the people who, the men who were in wheelchairs uh, were uh, represented, of course. But after it was over, they were left in Westminster Abbey, um, very tired, some of them feeling very cold while everybody else left. And they were sort of felt, some of them, that they were just bundled out afterwards because, you know, you don't feel a great sense of thanksgiving when you see somebody whose whole future life has been changed and unless he has quite exceptional powers of resilience and courage, ruined. Uh, So yes, the the experience of women is 
is very much ignored, but it's the experience of men is only very selectively represented too. And I wanted to make that good as well, because in the Iliad, very, there are very, very few wounds. And I started thinking uh, from the background of the First World War, I started thinking, well, actually, they are fighting across uh, fertile farmland. It's ruined now, but that soil is fertile. They've got open wounds. The soil gets into the wounds. Mm. The result of that is gas gangrene, which oh. is a terrible thing. Yes. And it's, I thought, why not? Let's have that. Yes, absolutely. So and I think I that... had the stink hut yes. when men whose wounds start to stink go, go, mm. and they don't come back out. Mm. And that crackling sound, which again... The crackling sound, yes, yes which yeah. is what doctors in the First World War used to listen for. Yeah, but yeah. there's no reason why a physician mm. in you know, a Bronze Age army wouldn't have learned that that's what you listen for. That's what happens, yes, yeah. 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 Fascinating. Thank you so much for this, Pat. And I'd love just to kind of finish off, I suppose, by asking a little bit about to go back to the notion of this as a, a particular award that's granted through libraries. I'd love to talk to you a, a little bit about yourself and whether you feel that you have been shaped as a as a writer and a reader by public libraries in your own. Absolutely. Life. Yeah, totally. Um <clears throat> <clears throat> you know, I, I didn't grow up in a home where there, where there were books, though I did love reading, uh, and I couldn't get enough of the public library, you know. You were only allowed, I think it was three books, and it, it, it was never enough. You know, the minute, the minute I, could, I could, I got back in there, and I remember being 12 and 13 because you were allowed into the adult section when you were 14. And I couldn't wait to get into the adult section and to have all these other books as well. No, I, I would say the public libraries made me. And like you, I particularly value this prize because it comes from the libraries. It comes from people who are actually reading, not you know, uh, professionals in a little room, uh, you know, tossing ideas around, but actually from the grassroots, from the books that have been borrowed and the librarians who have recommended them. It's yeah. a great prize. Yeah. And as we're recording... And this, it's an honour to have been shortlisted. Oh, thank you, Pat. Um, as, a, as, a, uh, as we're recording this, we're actually in another lockdown in Dublin at the moment, so our public libraries have had <laughs> so to close. We are here in, in yeah. the north of England. Oh, it's yes, terrible. of course, <laughs> yes. But our public libraries have had to close. And I, I find that, like a lot of people over the course of this lockdown... Um, you come to have a new appreciation for for public resources like the libraries, which as soon as you can't get to them, you really notice the lack. And I and I hope that uh, this will be something that um, people will bear in mind again afterwards, because I think, you know, in I know in the UK and Ireland, I think our libraries are always slightly under threat, like many public resources. Yes. Oh, yes, yes. And, here. and it's it, and the libraries also perform a social function. Uh, they're a refuge for people who have to be out on the streets because they live in B&Bs B and they're turfed out for most of the day. And yeah, they, you, see, you see them sitting in the reading room and you know they've nowhere else to go. And the libraries run classes and, uh, you know, book groups. 
and, and for lonely people, they are a place where you can go. Uh, they are so important. And uh, I, I think somehow uh, the history of this has been forgotten because it's almost as you hear local politicians talking as if the libraries are this middle class elitist thing. That is not what the libraries were. The libraries were for the working classes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just finally, because I'm I'm so intrigued by uh, how everybody is surviving at the moment since we've all been so separate from each other. Um, in terms of your own practice and writing practice and day-to-day and -day work, um, how has the current lockdown affected you? Have you found more space uh, for creativity or have you found it all too anxiety-inducing like so many of us have? Well, I think the first lockdown in March, uh, I had about three weeks where I couldn't write a thing and I couldn't even read. I, I couldn't do anything connected. And I wouldn't have said I was, you know, terrifically anxious, but obviously I was, because I couldn't concentrate on anything. Um, I did get back into it, mainly because I was coming to the end of a, a publishing cycle and there was a deadline. And I'm working every day now, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. I sometimes think when the book finally goes off, <laughs> what, what am I going to do? Oh, write us another so one straight I, I away. I look around the house and I can see plenty of things that I ought to be doing. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, look, Pat, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in to the other episodes as we count down to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award winner announcement. Wherever you're listening from, we invite you to join us for the online awards ceremony broadcast from the Guinness Storehouse in Dublin on the 22nd of October at 11am Irish Standard Time. You can book your free ticket at www.ilfdublin.com and browse the other fantastic events in this year's International Literature Festival Dublin programme.